Father, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you that uh, we don't have to be confused about what you say because you say it to us clearly in a book that has been preserved literally for centuries. And uh, as we've seen recently, uh, prophecies being fulfilled over centuries that um, verify and authenticate that this book is supernatural. So I pray that we would keep that in mind as we listen to it today, as we listen to me. Um, I know I'm a human vessel, so I pray that uh, I would in no way um, mislead or misspeak your word and that uh, you would ultimately, from the pages of scriptures, um, work into each person's heart what they need to hear. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I was in college, my favorite publication that was put out by our college, San Jose State University, was uh, The Tower List. And the reason I like The Tower List is The Tower List was, was put out by an honor fraternity. And this is what they did. I mean, you guys love this. They graded the teachers. How would you like to, even in elementary school, how would you like somebody to grade your teachers? They grade you, so it's only fair that you get to grade them, right? And so, like, maybe you got a B, but your teacher got a D. That felt good. didn't help a whole lot with your GPA, but it, it helped to kind of feel like, well, they deserved that. They weren't a good teacher. And it was also helpful because it gave you guidelines for who you wanted as your professor. You could look and say, this is, they, they would tell you all about the professor and decide who you wanted to have as your teacher that next year. And it was kind of cool. I mean, they would even be honest. They'd say, this professor is extremely hard and very demanding, but you will learn a tremendous amount, and he grades fairly. And so you were just careful not to take that teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Give me the guy with the easy A. (laughs) Now, even in this world of tolerance, you know, we talk about tolerance all the time. One thing that I think most people find intolerable is terrible teaching. Isn't that true? Terrible teaching is intolerable. When somebody doesn't know what they're talking about and they're trying to teach you, no wonder you get a poor grade. And how about in church? If we teach the Bible incorrectly, that should be intolerable. It's not what God would want us to do. Now, we're going to start a new series today, and it's a series on the first epistle or long letter written to a man called Timothy who was himself a pastor. So it's called a pastoral epistle. And it's really cool for us as a church because what's happening here is in this letter, he's telling this pastor how to pastor. Well, you guys are thinking, oh, I'm going to find out now. I can grade Ron. Now, take it easy on me. Um, But the idea is still there that it it basically tells us how we're supposed to do church. And we're a new church. So it's going to help us learn how to do church. So we're going to get instructions that we should follow. And there's two primary instructions, two primary themes that we'll see repeatedly. And one is teach sound doctrine, or in other words, doctrine is another word for teaching. Do not have terrible teaching. Make sure that the teaching aligns itself with the Bible. And number two, make sure that you are structuring yourself in a biblical manner, in a, in a, in a manner that's consistent with what the Bible teaches. And today, we're going to talk more about the terrible teaching. He starts off right away wanting to talk about let's not have terrible teaching. And I'm going to let him introduce it for you. I'm going to let the the actual beginning of the book do some introduction to the book. We'll start off today um, as we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses, but we'll start with verse 1. Good place to start. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Sounds kind of strange when you think about it. That's not the way we write letters. I would write, for example, Dear Kathy, right? 
Uh, but in this case, you start the book and you say, Jeremy. What a weird way to start a book, huh? You know, you start, start your book, Petey. You know, you just start off with your name. And, and you just say, that's, that's who you are, and then you go into it. But that's how they did it in the ancient world and ancient Greek literature. So a couple things to note. Paul, his name, names are important. Paulus is a Greek name. And the, the, the culture, that was important. And it means small. That's what it means. It was a humble name. And so it shows humility on the part of the person writing. It also shows that he was Greek. That's a Greek name. He actually had two names. In that culture, you would have two names sometimes because he had a Hebrew name, which was Saul, and this was his Greek name. And he used the Greek name because he was ministering to people who primarily spoke Greek. And it was a name that showed humility as well um, as he felt that he needed to be humble because of his circumstances, which we'll learn more of Later, what we do know of Paul, I'll just give you a brief one, because a lot of you know about Paul um, if you've been coming around church for a while. But the, the bottom line is, is this was a guy who was a rising leader within Judaism, within the church, within the synagogues in Jerusalem. And he became an opponent of what was called the way, which was the early name of what? The church, Christianity. Okay. And so he became an opponent of it. And he did some pretty bad stuff. But along the way, he did 180. His entire life changes. And he becomes a new guy. And he becomes an unlikely hero for the church, becomes the greatest missionary of the early church throughout the Roman Empire, and then he becomes the greatest theologian of the church at that time, and he writes much of the New Testament. So that's who this this guy is. Now, he describes himself as an apostle, and an apostle is one who is a messenger. He is the messenger of... Now, listen, he's not Jewish, because if he was Jewish, he would say he was the messenger of God, and he wouldn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So you know he's not Jewish, and he's not Greek, because if he was Greek, he would say the gods. So it's very important in that day that he identifies himself as the follower, as the messenger of God, whom he says is, you know how we talk about Jesus as Savior? Here he says God is Savior. He intertwines their names to say he feels that Jesus and God are co-equal, that Jesus is God. And he has been sent on a special message, a special mission to serve them. Now here's a trick question. Why would he, in a personal letter to Timothy, his good friend, tell him that he's an apostle? It's like, duh, you know, why why wouldn't Timothy know that, right? Why would he do that? He does that when he writes churches so that the churches understand, "I I am being called by God to give you this message. Okay, the churches understand, this is important to listen to. But why would he say that to Timothy? We don't know for sure. But you know why we think, a lot of people think, is because this was always intended to be an open letter. In other words, he wanted Timothy to read this to the whole church. And by saying this, he's saying, listen to Timothy, because God sent me and God had me send him. So very important to listen to Timothy. Now he goes on and he says it's to Timothy, Timotheus. Timotheus means uh, honoring God. Neat name. Any Timothys here? Any Pauls? We got one Paul. All right, Paul, but he's not small. Bad, <laughs> bad choice of words there. I never thought about that before. Yeah. So, um, so Timothy and Paul. Now, Timothy, we have his story. Paul's story is mostly in the Acts of the Apostles. And Timothy actually starts in verse six, chapter 16. And what we learn is that Timothy was the son of a Greek pagan father. And his mother and grandmother were Jewish and they became Christians under Paul. In fact, approximately in the year AD 47, we've calculated it, 
Paul came to their town, their little village of Lystra, which is modern-day Turkey. And he went there, and he told them about Jesus Christ, and Timothy became a follower. And two years later, about AD 49, he went back, and Timothy was doing so well, he took him along with him as his personal assistant. And for close to 15 years, Timothy has been traveling around the Roman Empire with Paul. What a job. Scary, but exciting. He's been with him in prison. He's been with him at the seas. He's been with him in all these different adventures. He's his right arm. Six of Paul's letters are co-signed by Timothy. Timothy was an amiable guy, kind of, seems to be kind of quiet and even timid at times, but very faithful. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, that he's sending uh, Timothy to the Philippians because nobody else cares more about them than Timothy. Timothy cares more about others than he cares about himself. He's just this incredible person. And Paul and Timothy are about as opposite as can be in terms of their temperaments, personalities, backgrounds, age, everything. And yet, have you ever heard opposites attract? These two guys become very close. It's probably pretty certain that nobody was closer to Paul than Timothy. They spent a lot of time together. And so this is who he's writing to. And he says, as far as we know, we don't know if Paul was married or not. We know we have no record of him having children. And he refers a couple times, and this time here, as Timothy, as my son, as my spiritual son. He looks to him as if he's his own son. Very, very close relationship. If there's a lesson that we learn from here is that we all need Paul's. We all need spiritual big brothers and sisters and, and spiritual parents. We all need Timothys. We all need spiritual little brothers and sisters and, and, and kids. And that's a good thing for us to have. I know I just talked um, recently, about a week or so ago, I talked to Don Wilcox, who in college days was my Paul. And I still talk to him for advice and still call him. And he lives out in Colorado now. In two weeks, Jim Day, the first person I ever discipled, is coming to visit me from uh, Virginia. We're still close friends. And those are the kinds of relationships that God wants each of us to have. So it's a good thing to say, who's, who's the person I'm learning from and who's the person I'm teaching or maybe even sharing what I did wrong so they don't do the same? That's a good lesson. Now, the rest of what he says here, uh, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, is kind of similar to what you would do in Greek literature. It's just kind of saying, I pray blessings on you. But of course, when he prays blessings on them, they're packed with more information. Um, and he uses, it's interesting, he uses the Greek and the Hebrew. The Greek form of blessing, grace, unmerited favor. You don't deserve this, but I pray that God will be good to you. Peace is what, do you think? What do you think it comes from? It's from the Hebrew. So now you know. So we have one person say, I don't know. So yeah, Hebrew. And so he's Hebrew, right? He's Jewish, but he's writing in Greek to the Greeks. So he uses both. And he says, hey, he says that you have God's peace, his well-being, his fulfillment, uh, his security that you find only in relationship with him that you have his mercy, his care in your life, and these are the things I pray for you. Now, let's get into what I have, I'm writing about. You ready? What's he writing about? He says it right here. I urged you when I went to, into Macedonia to stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. So, first of all, he says, I went to Macedonia. This is probably in the late, early 60s. Paul is near the end of his life. His health is probably failing 
and he is going to Macedonia, which is Greece. And he feels he has a calling there, and he says, I want you to stay in Ephesus. Ephesus is one of the five most major cities of the Roman Empire, along with Corinth, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Did you know that? How many people knew that? I didn't know that until about last week. But it was apparently a very major city at one time. And one of the reasons why is because it had, had a port. It had this, this river caster that ran into the Aegean Sea, and so they could bring all this stuff in. But it's not anymore. You know why? That river silted over, and now it just died out. It was a dying city at the time. They just didn't know it. It was very prominent at that time. It was along the Mediterranean Sea, part of Turkey. Today it doesn't even, I mean, it's, it's pretty much done. But at that time, it was powerful. It was at the height of its glory, and they built all these magnificent monuments. It had one monument for which it was most famous, a temple to the goddess of fertility, known as Artemis or Diana, according to whether you were Roman or Greek. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. This town was known for its incredible prosperity. It was known also for its rampant immorality, especially in terms of sexuality. And so he's writing to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, I want you to stay there because I can't stay there anymore. I've got to move on. See, he had started a church there. It had done very well. Probably other churches had been started around the metropolitan area, so it was really going well. This church was really taking off. It was doing great. Well, now he's, got a, he's going to leave, right, because he's got something else to do. And then he has problems there, so he goes back there again. About eight years ago, he and Timothy hung out there for almost three years. And now he leaves, and now they have problems there again. And he says, I cannot keep going back anymore. Timothy, you got to go back there. you got to take care of this. Why do you think Timothy? His most trusted, most trusted companion. He knew Timothy could get the job done. Timothy had been there before, and they know him. And what else? Where was Timothy from originally? Where did we say? Do you remember? Turkey, right? He's a Turk. He's from Turkey. Send him back. So he goes back to Turkey to take on this job. And Paul says to him, he says, it's interesting. He says, I, want, I command you to stay there. In other words, be still. And it's almost like this is an open letter too. One of the signs that this is an open letter. And he's saying, you know, Timothy doesn't really want to be there with you guys. He'd rather be traveling with me. And you guys are a lot of trouble. But I called him to be there, so don't give him a hard time. So Timothy has the task of staying in Ephesus. Does that sound like a nice place to stay? Anybody want to take a vacation to Ephesus? See Artemis, the tower? The temple's not there anymore. You can, see, you can actually see the uh, archaeological digs and everything around there. It's, it's actually pretty fascinating. I've seen pictures, but it's not there anymore. So that's where he's supposed to go. Now, what's he going to do there? He says, uh, he says I, as I urged you when I went there, so that command certain people not to teach false doctrines, false teachings. And that's when we get into the terrible teachings. So, you know, terrible teachings, when you have terrible teachings, they have bad results, right? And we're going to look, we're going to list some of those results today. And in the process, we'll learn a lesson. And there's one lesson in particular that I think we'll learn as, I hope we'll learn as we get through all of this. But let's kind of walk through it to start with. Uh, first of all, the results of terrible teaching. The first is in verses 3 through 5, they promote controversies rather than God. Terrible teachings within the church, they promote controversies and divisions, get people upset rather than getting them to focus on God. You focus on the problem rather than on God, right? 
So um, we jump into this, and again, he says, uh, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines, false teachings any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Hmm. What in the world are they talking about? Endless myths and genealogies? We really don't know for sure. We're not for sure because in those days they didn't have the New Testament like we have today, so they were mostly studying the Old Testament. And so probably, and this is how, this is, if you've noticed, this is how false teachings usually start. You get to a passage in Scripture that you don't like. You don't like what it says because either it doesn't give an answer that you want it to have or it says something that you don't like. And so you change it. And so it, it probably had, when there were prophecies, they would try to make prophecies say things they weren't really saying in the Old Testament. Or they would try to make links between different genealogies that weren't really there to try to answer it and fill it in on their own. In time, they do the same things with paganism, and then they would connect it with Judaism and Christianity, and they would develop their own belief systems called heresies. One of the most famous was Gnosticism, and many think this was an early form of Gnosticism. But the bottom line is, have you ever encountered anything in Scripture that made you uncomfortable? Did you ever think about maybe changing? Or maybe this is what it really means. You ever said that or had somebody say, this, maybe this is what it really means. And you start to begin to change it. And next thing you know, you go down the wrong path. And so Paul now tells us what it's supposed to look like. This is the most important verse. And it's kind of a sleeper. You don't catch it at first. This is the most important verse in the whole passage. He says this, the goal of this command is love. The goal of true teaching is love. Uh, Akapao, unconditional love for people. How does that work itself out in teaching? This is what it should look like. It comes from a pure heart. A pure heart would mean that you put God first, his will above all others. Remember what Jesus said um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8? He said, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see who? See God. Our hearts need to be pure. And we can't stay there all the time, but we should always be wanting to do what God's will is. Do you want to do what God's will is even when it's not what your will is? And then the next thing he says is that it comes from a good conscience. Is there something you're doing wrong right now? Can you confess that and apologize and get back on track again? And then the final thing he says is that um, it will result in a sincere faith. In other words, is what you believe in sincere or are you just going through the motions? This is what it gets down to. When you encounter something, and in this book of 1 Timothy, everybody in this room is going to encounter something that makes you uncomfortable at some point. So now you're not going to want to come back. Oh, I got it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's reality, right? I mean, it's just, it, it, there's going to be something you feel uncomfortable about, maybe today or maybe next week or the week after. And what are you going to do with that? Will you say, God's will prevails. I'll do what he says anyway. I'll forgive me, Lord, for going the wrong way. Or are you just, are you just kind of going through the motions? Are you going through the motions or is your faith real? See, it, it challenges us in our relationship with God. Um, it's what I call the human factor. This is a human factor. 98% of the time you love what the Bible says about God, right? He's a God of love. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of grace. He's a God of justice. But he's, he's always, his justice is always right. 
He's a God who changed your life. He's a God who healed you from problems, addictions, and things. We go on and on how wonderful God is. But about 2% of the time, you don't understand. About 2% of the time, you don't understand. And Isaiah 55, verse 8, Isaiah 55, verse 8 explains that. It says, because God's ways are different than man's ways. God's thoughts are different than our thoughts. Because he is perfect and we are imperfect. And so when we don't understand him, since 98% of the time we do, sometimes we've just got to say, okay, your will be done. I'll trust you on this one, even though I don't get it. That's the, that's the problem with the human factor. Will we go with the human factor or will we go with the divine? And, and what he's saying is that's where you have problems. That's where the problems begin with false teaching. His people start saying, well, I don't think, I think I'll, I'll inject the human side of me on this one. Now, this is when it gets worse. Is once you get into that, you've got to justify what you're teaching. And once you start trying to justify something that isn't really true and you can't support from the Bible, pretty soon you start teaching things that aren't true, right? You start teaching things that can get kind of ridiculous. You, you ever study some of the cults and stuff and how strange they get? I mean, it gets off the wall. And some people, they start with the Bible, and then it's like, where did you get to where you get to? And so another result is that they teach without proper knowledge. Verses 6 through 7. Some have wandered away from these and, and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Have you ever sat at a dinner table? Okay, think about this one. Close your eyes if you want to. Think about this one time where you're sitting at the dinner table and somebody starts talking about something and somebody's laughing and you know that they're totally bogus. And they say it with such confidence, and it's your area of expertise, maybe even your job. You ever have that happen? Maybe once in your entire life? <laughs> right? And how do you feel when that happens? It's like, you know, what should I say something? Even worse, when they get up and they make a statement in front of a whole audience. Or how about a pastor who constantly misquotes scripture or who is saying things that you know are not true? And what's worse about that is not only are you embarrassed for them, but you look around you and you start noticing that some people actually believe it. And they're following them. Isn't that scary? And see, telling the truth is going to cause unpopularity and division and discomfort sometimes. But most of the time, it's, it's focusing on God and on loving God. The problem is when we start saying things like, you know, we have to, this is the only way, this is how the end times are going to end. You know, we start emphatically saying, this is how it has to be. You see, when we start making those kinds of statements and we start arguing and fighting over those, we've got problems. And when we start not knowing what we're talking about in the process, because you can't prove it, so you start talking in circles, we've got problems. The moral to the story, know your Bibles. Know your Bibles well enough so that those who do not know their Bibles cannot fool you. Know your Bibles well enough so that those who do not know their Bibles cannot fool you. Because I could be fooling you today. Shoot, I could be making this whole thing up on my own, right? How do you know unless you read the Bible on your own when you go home today and check out what I've been saying, see? And look at it carefully on your own. 
because otherwise people could fool you. And it happens all the time, doesn't it? People say, this is the only translation you can use. This is the way you have to pray. And, and they start saying these things that the Bible is not saying. And if you don't know your Bible, you can get caught up in that and they can begin to control the way you think. So you have to be very careful and not just know the Bible, but really, really be a student of the Bible. Now, having said that, um, he gets into an area that even in some ways is a little bit more sticky because it's kind of the conclusion of all of this. Uh, the law is improperly applied to the righteous, verses 8 through 11. What happens when you keep having false teaching is next thing you know, you're, you're putting all this pressure and adding all these laws and rules or regulations to people who are following God already. You don't need the law for people who are doing the right thing. You need laws for the criminals, right? And that, there is a need for the law, Paul's going to say. There's a need to keep criminals in place. What if we got rid of the law? Will we have problems? Yeah, we, we'd be in bad shape. So we've got to have the law, but we don't need to add to the law. And we'll see in chapter 4 later that these guys were adding to the law. They kept, and this is what happens with false teaching. The more they try to justify, and then the more they try to control people around them, the next thing you know, you have to dress a certain way if you're a Christian. You have to, to read the Bible at a certain time, you know. You, and, and the list goes on and on and on. You can't do this. You can do that. And it becomes legalism. And it's not what the Bible's teaching. And it's all started from this false teaching. This is the other thing that happens, though, which is the t- tricky thing, is sometimes they will say emphatically, they'll add to the law, and they'll say, you don't have to follow these things. It's okay. By grace, you can do whatever you want. And they're both on opposite ends, but they're the two extremes, and that was also happening. And so it's one or the other, right? Isn't that scary? But we can fall into that so easily. And he goes on to explain this. Let's look at it from his words. He says, we know that the law, the Mosaic law, is good. It's a good thing to keep us in line if one uses it properly. But he says, we also know that law, this time he doesn't say the law, so he's saying law in general. Any kind of good law, the natural law of the universe, is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. Now, don't get paranoid. You know, because you can almost feel like, man, I just, is he talking about me? He's talking about people that consistently, regularly decide they're going to do the wrong thing. When people know they're doing the wrong thing and they keep on doing it, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about, you know, the mistakes we make, because otherwise, I mean, I mess up all day long. Do you have that problem? I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, oh, man, how many times did I blow it today? Um, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who say, I know I'm doing the wrong thing, and I'm going to do it anyway. And I'll even justify it. And they get to the point where they're justifying it, and they don't even, they're lying to themselves. They're like in a state of denial. That's the problem he's talking about. But he says, if if you're back in chapter 5, and you're saying, I want to do God's will, I want to love God with all my heart, mind, and soul, I want to follow him, God forgive me for the things I'm doing wrong, you don't need all these different rules and regulations. You need the law as a guide point post, but you don't need to be uptight about everything. Remember what Augustine said, love God and do as you please. If you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, you will do the right things. So seek that as, as your compass.
There are things we can watch out for along the way that can help us, and Paul gives us a list. There's a very fascinating list. It's the same list that he gives in first, almost the same, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And, and it's an interesting list, not exhaustive, but what he's basically saying is, we know from the Bible and in our hearts that there are certain things that are right and wrong. Do not add to those things and do not subtract from them. That's when, that's when false teaching has gone to its extreme. That's the result of false teaching is it gets to the point where it begins to affect what's right and wrong in society. And it can get you really confused over things that are really supposed to be obvious. The things that he is talking about now, he's going to mention, we'll end with, is from Exodus chapter 20, where he talks about the Ten Commandments. He doesn't talk about the first five commandments, which are all about honoring God, and that's caught up in verse 5. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, if you're following him and you're doing what's right, follow God. He talks about the five following commandments, the things that affect others. We love God, how do we love others? These are all things that we can do that are, un- that are harmful to others. And, and here's the catch. Everybody in this room feels uncomfortable when they do these things or when somebody else does them. And that's why they're controversial. We don't, if I help an elderly lady across the street, nobody, there's, no, there's no argument, there's no controversy about that. But if I break one of these other laws, people get upset. However, some people will actually argue in favor of some of the things we're going to talk about. It gets really confusing. For example, society always has different things that they follow and that they break. And sometimes it seeps into the church, so we get confused over what's right or wrong. And that's why God has given us these, so we can know for sure. Otherwise, we can, even though we know it's wrong, we can do the wrong thing, and we know it's wrong, right? You, you ever do something that's wrong, but it kind of felt good doing it? And now you want to justify it and say, well, it was okay because... You know, and you start going down that road. And now God steps in and says, no, it wasn't okay. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. And he answers it for us. Let me give you an example of how confusing this can be. Murder. Is murder right or wrong? Wrong, right? Tell that to the people in the Wild West. In the Wild West, murder was okay because it was a matter of survival, and they learned to justify it. It was true with the Auka Indians who killed missionaries who came to visit them because that's how they, 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 they were a tribal people, a warlike people, and that murder was a good thing. See how it can get confusing? And pretty soon, even murder, you can argue out of one side of the mouth that murder's okay under certain circumstances. You see what can happen? And we lose our compass. We lose our moral compass. And that's what happens when we get false teaching going over a period of time. We begin to justify everything. Paul says, bottom line, there's some basic things you know what's right or wrong. Don't don't add to them. Don't subtract from them. And then he begins to give the list. So we're going to walk through the list. And it's a little bit uncomfortable, some of this stuff. He says, for those who kill their fathers or mothers. I hate those people. Um, what does he mean? To kill their mother? My daughter's laughing, you know. Um, I, I hate those people. Um, he probably means more than kill, though. The idea here is be, dis- be respectful to moms and dads. Because that goes back to the Ten Commandments. Um, it's interesting, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul's still writing him this, and he says that that will be one of the signs of the end of the world is when children start having more and more disrespect for their parents. 
Their parents, their eyes are bugging out at me right now. They go, the end has come. (laughs) We are seeing an increase in that. I don't think that's major yet, but we are seeing an increase in that, and that's certainly something um, we all want to see get better, at least us as parents. Um, But we need to be that way. Parents need to be that way to their parents. It's the whole idea of of treating people that are older with respect. Now, the next one, he says, um, is murderers. Well, we should be against murder, and and our country does a pretty good job curbing murder as a whole. But what about when a lady is pregnant and she's killed? If she wants the baby, we say two people are killed. But if she kills the baby on her own through abortion, that's okay. Think about that. Why is it okay one way and not the other way? If she's pregnant with the baby and she wants the baby and is murdered, then that baby is a person. But if, she, if the baby is, is killed through an abortion, and, you know, that's okay. You see how, we, see how the rationale can start happening? So we have to be really careful. I mean, these things may make some of us uncomfortable here, but we have to be careful how we do that. Now, if a person has done abortion, we'll see this too. God is a God of forgiveness and grace. And he starts from the beginning. But can you see how this makes right away? It makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? But our society puts so much pressure on us to think opposite of the way God would want us to, and we we give in because of the pressure that we have. Um, Adulterers. Obviously, that's bad. We see an increase in that in society. How about pornography? Is pornography adultery? I'd say it is. It's the same intent. In your heart, you're still doing, and in your mind, you're doing the same thing. Um, Here's the one that's probably going to give us the most trouble today. Perverts. Well, we're all against perversion. But this word here has a, has a more direct translation that we also find um, in 1 Corinthians 6. He translates it this way. The word for pervert is male homosexual. And so what he's saying here in the Bible is he's equating homosexuality as being one of the things that God is against. Does that make you uncomfortable? We've been told that homosexuality is a civil right today. You know, we hear this all the time, so what do we do with it? I'm sure that there are Christ followers even here today that sympathize with homosexuals. Um, You may have a very close gay friend, for example. Uh, I had a gay um, boss, one of the best bosses I have. We still keep in touch with LinkedIn. He knew that I wasn't where he was at. We were in different places in what we believed, but, but we, we were friends. Um, and we you know, didn't talk that much about that, but we, we got along fine. And, and you, know, you, would, you could have other situations where maybe you've wondered if maybe you're gay. You know, there's all this emphasis to, to explore your sexuality, and you wonder, well, maybe I have lesbian tendencies or, or gay tendencies, whatever it might be. You, you hear this all the time. So what do you do with this? Well, first, there's a couple things that we have to realize, and it's this, first of all, is that you can actually argue to you blue in the face on this deal and never win an argument unless somebody stands up and says with authority one position is right and one position is wrong. And in this case, God is stepping up with authority and saying, I created the human race and homosexuality is wrong. It's throughout the Bible. Romans 1 goes into detail. It is what it is. A couple things to mention. People will say, but you don't understand, in those days, 
people were a lot more prudish, right? You know, they didn't understand what we know today because we're a lot more advanced. What we need to understand is that Ephesus was a town known for its rampant homosexuality. They were much more accepting of homosexuality than we are in America today. So for Paul to go there was even more daring. If he would do that in those days, he would do the same today. We'd say, well, you know, it's, it's an ancient barbaric book and we don't understand that today we have science that proves that people are born homosexuals. They can't help it, right? That's never been proven scientifically. They've never been able to prove that despite a lot of efforts to try to prove that. What they have proved is that people seem to have tendencies towards certain sins. They've shown that more with prisoners. They've done a lot of research with prisoners, and they've discovered that prisoners tend to have violent tendencies. I would say this, that all of us have our own vices, right? The things that I struggle with are probably not the same things that Jeff struggles with. So he's a better guy than I am. You know, so we all, we all have our own problems, right? So some people are going to have problems with addiction. Some people are going to have problems with sexuality. Some people with lying and cheating. Everybody's going to have their problems. And if you don't keep your problem in check, it can come to control you and define you. That's why a, a person may, after, after t- 20 years of sobriety, still identify themselves as an alcoholic because they know that that's been a problem in their life that will always now be a problem. And so it's something we have to keep in check and get it in check right away. But we can't excuse it and just, you know, push it away. Now, I am, and this is true with everything here, we've got to be careful of the two extremes, right? This is a good example. One extreme is homophobia. Should we now go out and be homophobic? No, that's not at all what this passage is saying. So the other extreme is saying, should we just by grace just let them do what they want to do and just forget it and just say everything's okay, whatever you want to do is fine, whatever I want to do is fine. Well, you know, in one sense, their life is their life. And if they don't know the Lord, they're, in a sense, not under the same law we are. Um, But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we agree what they're doing is wrong. Right. I think we take a position where we say, let's agree to disagree. I can love you as a person, but I don't agree with your position. There may be times because of our love for Christ and our love for the person that we protect a homosexual against those that are bullying them. I would hope that would be true in this room, that you would always protect a homosexual that's being bullied by others. And you wouldn't be doing the bullying. There may be times when you vote against legislation that's against homosexuals because it's so harshly termed. You see what I'm saying? But you still take a stand that this is what I believe in. I'm not going to support it. I'm generally going to vote against it. Um, but I don't hate you as a person any more than I hate you for any of these other things. If I have a friend who you know, has a problem with an addiction, I don't hate them. I hate what they do, but we can still be friends. And so you know, we, we've got to find this balance between this. And it's really become really awkward lately. And I know it's really hard. But it is what the Bible says. My, here's the bottom line. This is what my friend Samuel Kuniap, very interesting. Samuel Kuniap is one of my closest friends. He's a, he's a um, Nigerian scholar, um, uh, theologian, writer, um, church leader. And he's written a book in African, um, Af- Christian African ethics. And he talks about this topic. And he says, even if we were able to prove that people were born homosexual, 
it wouldn't matter. They still would need to be celibate and not practice. Because why? That's what the Bible says. This is a perspective from the continent of Africa. And, and the basic idea is this. You know what it comes down to? This isn't about homosexuality. This isn't about murdering. This isn't, this isn't about how you treat your parents. You know what this is about? This is about number five. Again, verse five. This is about, are you willing to do whatever God calls you to do even when you don't feel like doing it? The human factor. Are you willing to? And if you're doing wrong, are you willing to apologize to God and get right with him? And number three, do you really know God? Or are you just going through the motions? Are you all his or are you not? Wow, heavy stuff that Paul is right from the beginning saying we've got to get things under control, Timothy. Things are out of control. And he goes on and he says some other things. He says, this is, this is just as bad. This is the thing that actually sickens me the most. Slave trade. This would relate to thievery among uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments. And so now he's talking about slave trade and the, and the rabbis considered this a form of thievery. Slavery. We don't have slavery anymore. Man, have you heard about that? We got rid of slavery in the Civil War. Isn't that cool? Do you know there's more slavery in the world today than there's ever been in human history? And that most of it is being financed by the Western United States sex slavery from Asia in particular. It makes, you want a cause to fight for. That's one that really gets me sick to my stomach. That's an obvious one, I guess. How about this one? Lying and perjury. Lying is just as bad as everything else we've said. In some ways, it's the worst of all because it's tied into everything that's done. If you can't be honest with a person, you can't have an honest relationship with them. Have you ever thought about that? If I can't trust you, I can't have a real relationship with you. And if you're lying to me and I'm trusting you, we aren't having a real relationship. It's fake. We can't be intimate. We can't break the bounds. We can't really be tight. We can't have that soulmate relationship with your spouse or even with a good friend unless they're honest with you. And today in our culture, we promote dishonesty at every turn. Just white lies. We really need to be honest with each other. So after these cheerful thoughts, <laughs> Paul ties it up and he says, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. And what he basically says is what he said at the beginning. Don't add to or subtract from what the law says. When it comes down to it, don't add or subtract to what the law says. And, it, and it's something for us to think about in this way. Have you ever taken something that the Bible said and said the wrong thing? Have you ever stretched it or said something wrong? Or have you ever listened to somebody and they told you something that wasn't true and then you pass it on? I think probably everybody's done that in this room at some time. Have you ever failed in one of these areas we just talked about? In our hearts, even, we've failed, if not worked it all out. So we all have things that we've failed in. And I think it's a good time to get right with God, to sit down with God and think through, is there an area in my life that I need to work through right now? It ends with good news. Though. Did you notice the last five words? It don't mean a lot until next week. You have to come back next week to find out more. But, but the basic thing is, which he entrusted to me. Paul is saying, God entrusted this Bible to me, and that's what's really amazing here. Why? 
because he's going to go on to talk about himself. Paul kidnapped followers of Christ. He lied about them and made sure they were executed. He was a murderer. He was a kidnapper. He was a liar. He was a perjurer. Paul is painting his own profile. The man writing this book and saying that he is an apostle of God is saying, I am worse than any of the people that I'm writing about. And God changed me. There is nothing, people, that you can do that is too bad for God. There is nothing that can ever eliminate you from his love if you just cast yourself on him. Paul did, and it made a 180-degree difference in his life, and he is confident it can do the same for these people. Isn't that incredible? That means that now that you've been feeling guilty, all you have to do is just tell God, I feel guilty, I'm sorry. It's over. He's already forgiven you if you're his child. He just wants to communicate with you and make sure that you get the record straight. And if you are not yet in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, there is absolutely nothing that can keep you from that relationship. Nothing you've ever done. God loves you so much that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave that you could be in relationship with him. And I pray that today is a day that you'd give your life to him. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for this, well, this difficult passage. It was a, it was a tough one this week. Uh, Paul tends to speak very straightforward, um, and that's the way you made him, and obviously that's the way you wanted him to do so, or you wouldn't have had him do so in the scriptures. Uh, there were big problems in the church, and I'm thankful that we don't have those problems in our church at this point, partly because we're new. But I pray that you would keep us from false teachings or even from slipping here and there and compromising in what we teach. And Lord, I know there's so much pressure in our society today to believe things that aren't true, and I pray that we would stay true to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Pray for anybody that doesn't yet know you, Lord. I pray that uh, they would come and talk to us and, and would come into a relationship with you and experience your grace and your fullness and your love and your forgiveness. And I pray that it, those that do know you, that this would be a time of experiencing your love and forgiveness and grace in their lives as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.